This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Anna Yusum. She has uh, quite the amazing credentials. Uh, Yale, Stanford, all the top schools, a psychiatrist, uh, but uh, also very well-versed in the spiritual side of things, having studied the Kabbalah and, and, and Buddhism. Uh, her latest book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Uh, thank you so very much uh, for taking the time, Anna, to come on our show today. Thanks so much, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, good. Anna, um, let's begin we, uh, with, uh, for people who are not familiar with you and your work, um, you had, as Dennis suggested, um, impeccable psychiatric medical credentials, all the best schools, your, uh, your list of uh, professional articles is huge. Um, you seem very steeped in um, every area of psychiatry. And then at a certain point, somehow spirituality entered into your life on a personal level and obviously as well a professional level leading to uh, your uh, new book, Fulfilled. Can you give us a, a, a sort of overview of how that came to be? What, what happened in your life that led you to an, uh, the, the path you ended up on and to the book? Sure, Phil, yes. Um, just like you said, I had a very traditional uh, education. I went to Stanford undergrad, Yale Medical School. I was doing my residency at NYU, and then my life hit a bump in the road. And to take you back a little bit, if anyone had told me 10, 15 years ago that I would be a spiritual person, I would have laughed. This was not at all part of my lexicon. Anything that I learned in all of my Western medical education was very much grounded in science, in the scientific method, in empirical evidence and knowledge for things. And then as my life hit a bump in the road, I started finding myself unable to figure out how to lift myself out of my own darkness. A number of things were happening in my life. Relationships weren't working. Academically, things were particularly challenging in a way they never had been before. And I go into the details of all that in my book, but the bottom line was I was plunged into darkness. And all of the tools that I had worked so hard to acquire with my Western medical education, I found to be failing me. I couldn't pull myself out. And so I thought to myself, you know, like, I'm going to be helping people the rest of my life. And if these tools aren't helping me, that's quite problematic. I need to figure out how I can help myself and therefore how I'm going to be of use to my patients. So that's when I started on this whole other journey of doing soul searching and starting first to look within and then to look towards other traditions of healing, which included spending time in ashrams in India and learning Buddhist meditation in Thailand and going to Israel and then here in New York City to study Kabbalah and then learning about many different forms of healing from shaman in South Africa and South America. And in the course of all this, developing a whole arsenal of tools for healing that I never learned in my medical education and that really started to enable me to heal myself. And as I came out of the darkness, it enabled me to you know, help so many other patients that 
found themselves in similar situations, and that ultimately also led me to write this book. Okay, and I, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you in regard to that is, um, uh, you talk about the, uh, in your book, it's, the title is Fulfilled, <coughs> The Science of Spirituality. You, you're a scientist, you come out of a scientific background, but you've also gone into the spiritual realm. Why do you call it a, a science of spirituality? Are they two separate things, or are they, are they uh, compatible? Well, that's the whole um, point of the book, is to try to bring these seemingly incompatible entities closer together. Mm -hmm. So science, you know, as I mentioned before, is all about everything that's measurable, observable, quantifiable, whereas spirituality is often the opposite. It's experiences that are personal, subjective, transcendent, not quantifiable, and deeply meaningful, but not really, you know, often accessible to the eye in quite the same way. And so right now, more and more so than ever before, science is starting to give more credence to spirituality in the realm of healing. They're starting to try to quantify some of these, you know, more subjective, unquantifiable, usually unquantifiable experiences. So it's a really exciting time, and I try to bridge that gap precisely in my book. Um, Anna, uh, just to play devil's advocate for a minute. I'm a, um, Dennis and I go back a long way into this spirituality world. And we remember 45 years ago or more when the research on spiritual technologies like meditation and yoga first started to happen. And when I uh, wrote my last book, American Veda, I made a point of saying how um, over those ensuing decades, there's been hundreds and hundreds of research papers and uh, journal articles about various spiritual methods uh, and their uh, effect on, uh, on medicine and mental health. So I'm surprised that you did not, uh, that in, the, in your training at these elite schools, um, somehow that was not part of the curriculum, and it's disappointing for me to hear that. But how do you explain that when the research has been going on so long? Yeah, yeah, indeed, you're you're exactly right. And you know, this is not to say that it was completely absent at Yale Medical School. They actually have a program that brings spirituality into medicine, and. Mm. They certainly had classes, and they still have it now. I actually went back to speak about precisely this just a few weeks ago. So mm. they certainly had that. In residency, however, it was not as much the picture. Um, the dominant paradigm of psychiatry is really therapy and medication. So in my residency, I learned about different forms of therapy, be it cognitive behavioral, existential, psychodynamic, interpersonal, and about medication. But spirituality, we're taught to you know, do a spiritual history and taught to really engage with people about some of their spiritual beliefs. But I think it's done in a very academic fashion. And unless you've actually gone into that space yourself, it's hard to really appreciate the, mm. you know, like, like you yourself, um, you call you know, your podcast Spirit Matters. It's hard to appreciate that spirit matters if it doesn't really matter to you. So most of my colleagues, it didn't really matter because that wasn't part of what they were taught. And it wouldn't have mattered to me had I not experienced my dark night of the soul. 
And let's let's just to clarify uh, for our listeners, when you were talking about uh, the uh, main features of the curricula that you were studying, you said medication with a C, not meditation with a T. So your, your, <laughs> your, your training was in the pharmaceutical end of uh, mm-hmm. psychiatry and, and in therapeutic methods. And, and what we call spirituality was not uh, explicitly part of it to a large degree. Dennis, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, and I think from my own experience, uh, dealing with clinical psychologists, with psychiatrists, that at most uh, uh, meditation, uh, spiritual practices are on the periphery of what they yeah. uh, they they give out, it, and uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so, but but, but it, it, in the past, I probably wasn't on the periphery. But Anna, I wanted to ask you: uh, you 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 see a patient, they come in, and uh, if you feel that person needs, uh, uh, and maybe you feel all your patients need this, uh, to be uh, operating on a spiritual side to deal with their dark night of the soul or whatever they may be dealing with at any given time. How do you determine uh, what, uh, uh, what to give them, what to recommend in terms of spiritual practice? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, for anybody who is open to a spiritual approach, I very much would like to engage with the patient in that. Now, to make it clear, not everybody who comes to see me is open in that. And it was only after my book came out about three months ago that I officially identified myself as a psychiatrist with a distinct interest in spirituality. Up until that time on my website, it was you know just more the psychiatric credentials. Of course, patients would come to me with those interests and we would explore them, but it wasn't something that it was out in the open as much. So now as patients come, um, you know, it's such a good question, like what methods of spirituality? It really depends on what the patient is open to. So my belief first and foremost is that every patient is unique and therefore needs a uniquely tailored therapeutic approach. There's no one size fits all medicine. There's no one size fits all therapy. And there's certainly no one size fits all spirituality. Um, There's, you know, for me with patients, I try to understand what it is that connects them to spirit. How do they feel most connected to their soul? And how are they able to show and cultivate their authenticity in this world? And then in terms of whatever traditions they belong to or whatever practices are meaningful to them, be it whether it be going to church or doing meditation and many different forms of meditation or having a yoga practice or starting to become involved in their Jewish community or studying Kabbalah or so many other forms of spiritual practice that enable people to connect to something greater. So my definition of spirituality is precisely that. It's a connection to part of something greater that you can tap into for guidance, for purpose, for um, a sense of meaning that is sometimes hard to for us to get just by the mundane duties of daily life in this world. So whatever enables people to connect to that something greater, I help them to cultivate that mm-hmm. together in our work. Uh, Anna, in uh, reading your uh, introduction in, in uh, Fulfilled, uh, I was struck by two things uh, about your uh, earlier years. One, uh, you were born and spent your first few years of life in Moscow um, and before coming to the U.S. And second, that when you were uh, 
in uh, I'm hearing strange noise. Is somebody? No, nothing is coming up from. Uh, oh, okay. Um, sorry. Um, in your studies, uh, you worked with Robert Sapolsky at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very familiar with his work. He's been an eminent researcher for many years, and I, I think a MacArthur Fellow as well. Um, how does these are unrelated? But do you think that um, coming from a Russian background or, or spending your formative years in Russia, having Russian parents, uh, had an influence on your uh, later development? And when you were studying with Dr. Sapolsky. Did the spiritual dimension enter into uh, the research in any way? Yes, both excellent questions. I'll start with the second one. So Dr. Sapolsky <coughs> remains a wonderful mentor to this day. And I actually just saw him here in New York City about three months ago when he published his book, Behave. Um, and uh, Dr. Sapolsky is actually an atheist, a self-proclaimed atheist um, for many, many years, even though he'd grown up himself in a much more religious Jewish uh, background. And so his beliefs are very different from mine. And when I studied with him, it was really about the brain and about neuroscience and understanding the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for learning and memory, and how the hippocampus is of all brain regions, the one most susceptible to stress. That was the nature of my work. And it was really two years at Stanford of intense and amazing neurobiological work with one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, Dr. Sapolsky. So I've obviously gone in a very different direction. And despite our different orientations on spirituality, he remains a wonderful mentor. And even though he himself said he couldn't endorse my book um, officially by virtue of his beliefs being different, he did um, a quasi-endorsement, which is he took a picture of him and I, my book and his book side by side, and that was his endorsement. Great. That's <laughs> so great. On the uh, website, which was yeah. very lovely. And, and I wanted to ask you a question. I want to approach this from a slightly different angle. We often think of people uh, getting psychiatric help, counseling, whatever, uh, and uh, uh, not really pursuing any uh, uh, spiritual uh, technologies that might help them. But on the other hand, you get people that are orthodox, either Jewish or Christian, uh, who are very steeped in spiritual practices. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, they also need the uh, assistance and help that can come from more traditional, uh, less spiritual end of uh, psychiatry, of clinical psychology. Uh, do, you, do, you, do, you often, do you get folks who are deeply spiritual but troubled in other ways uh, coming to you, or do those folks generally uh, avoid uh, psychiatric or uh, psychological treatments and remedies? Such an interesting question. Yes, very much so. I have treated people who are priests. I have treated rabbis. I have treated many people from the Orthodox Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. And many of their issues actually often are a part of the culture of which they are a part. You know, mm -hmm. the Orthodox Jewish community has certain issues, you know, certain things are allowed and not allowed that are much more stringent than in the rest of society. There is certain prohibitions with sexuality. So I find that that's something when people from Orthodox Jewish backgrounds come, that's something that's explored. And obviously this is, you know, something that you would say is more secular counseling related than necessarily right. spiritual. 
Yeah, and at the end, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings going through our process. So whether we come through a spiritual tradition, a less spiritual tradition, the issues are deeply existential issues having to do with purpose and meaning, with our aloneness, with our connection to people in this world, and trying to do with our life that which we're meant. Mm -hmm. Anna, uh, in your own explorations and in the uh, promotional material for your book, um, a number of uh, spiritual traditions are mentioned. Uh, Buddhism, uh, gurus in India, shamanistic traditions, Kabbalah. Um, it sounds like your own spirituality is a rather eclectic one. Um, and living in New York, you would get people who are uh, from various traditions and have various uh, approaches to their own inner life. Um, when you draw from a variety of traditions like that, what, what do you find are the commonalities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel all the different approaches that you mentioned are pathways to connecting to part of something greater. And ultimately, I would say that the final four chapters of my book, which are consciousness, elevating consciousness, synchronicity, using meaningful coincidences for guidance, you know, from the universe right. or from God, um, immortality or the idea of a transcendent soul and inter, um, interconnectedness, which is our unity as human beings. Those are the four principles that I define really as um, a more, whether it be religious or secular um, spirituality. And ultimately that all the ways, whether it be through ashrams in India or, you know, Buddhism in Thailand or yoga or Judaism, Kabbalah, whatever it is, ultimately those things connect us to one another, to the greater whole, and ultimately to ourselves and enable us to right. therefore live more authentic lives. Mm -hmm. So those are the common principles. Mm -hmm. Anna, uh, I'm curious, uh, you, you mentioned about the, your mentor, uh, Dr. Uh, Saplowski, uh, being uh, not really spiritual. But uh, can somebody uh, practice a meditation, a yoga, uh, or even study Kabbalah, uh, Kabbalah if they are not, uh, if they are agnostic, or even if they're atheist? Does belief have to come into this spiritual practice, or can a spiritual practice be done without uh, uh, an underlying belief system being embraced? So, in my opinion, I believe spirituality and religion are actually two very different things. Mm -hmm. And even though Dr. Sapolsky is a self-described atheist, he is one of the most spiritual people I know. Mm -hmm. Because spirituality is about living in accordance with values like love and trust and perseverance and kindness and giving back and purpose. And he lives that kind of life more than most people in this world. And... That's why I feel there's actually plenty of people who can be atheist, agnostic. Belief in God and spirituality are not connected. But living a good life in line with values, like transcendent values, that really underlie our interconnectedness, like love, trust, perseverance, that's spirituality. Very good. Uh, along along those lines, uh, and I remember several years ago uh, reading some studies um, 
about the the, uh, cor- the relationship between religion and spiritual spirituality and health outcomes. And I was intrigued by something uh, I found where distinction was made between unhealthy religious uh, interventions in health and healthy ones. In other words, people with what they called unhealthy religious uh, lives did not do well health-wise, and people with positive ones did. Do you find in your practice that uh, people who have uh, deep religious uh, affiliations and belief systems uh, can be uh, living healthy mental uh, health lives or unhealthy, depending on uh, the circumstances? Do you, do you see where I'm going with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important question, um, especially, you know, you asked me about, do I work with people with a religious orientation, such as priests and rabbis and people of the Orthodox Jewish community? I think what, and it's in some of those patients that I often see some beliefs that could be compatible with um, more trying mental health, such as the belief in a punitive God. Yes. Belief system, which certain patients certainly have held, um, is a belief system where you feel that no matter what you do, it's not good enough, that there's always some way in which you're sinning, that you're falling short. And it really, you know, depends because some people could have a belief um, in a punitive God, but also a God that loves you and guides you and supports you, that, you know, the God is a fair God as opposed to a punitive God. But I certainly see belief systems like that of a punitive God undermining people's sense of self-worth and their ability to live lives where they feel free and empowered and are able to embrace self-love and self-compassion. Because after all, how can you love yourself if at the end of the day you don't believe that God loves you? Right. And and can I just add to that? Um, I remember one of the... um, factors I saw was that uh, when people get uh, sick or, you know, are struggling with a health issue, if they have a belief system with a punitive God, then uh, they feel guilty and that makes their health outcomes worse. Do you find Precisely, right. And, you know, there's actually been so much um, data on this. It's not just a belief in something greater than oneself, but it's how you relate to that belief. It's whether you are collaborative with God, believing that you're going to do your part and God's going to do his or her part or its part, whatever you believe God to be. Or whether you feel, you know, because there's a lot of people who blame God. And if you blame God, you see yourself as a victim and God is the perpetrator. There are people who have that kind of Mm -hmm. relationship. And actually, it's that very belief system that I have found in my practice that actually creates crises of faith for people and makes people not believe. It's the question of why do bad things happen to good people? And at the end of the day, some people have a very hard time answering and reconciling that very question. Very good. Anna, uh... Have you uh, received any pushback, any criticism from colleagues, from people in, in your field, from psychiatry, uh, because of what you're doing with spirituality? And, or or uh, do you anticipating, if you have had some, getting more with the book out? 
You know, it's interesting. I anticipated a lot more pushback from colleagues, but I think because maybe we're closer to a paradigm shift than we were before, um, two former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Pedro Ruiz and um, (coughs) another, and both have actually stood behind and endorsed my book. And which is huge to have two of the leaders in psychiatry, Rodrigo Munez and Pedro Ruiz, to you know say that the book like this has merit and credibility, and this has, as far as I know, hasn't happened before in you know with a medical or scientific book that really does espouse spirituality in the way that mine does. Very good, uh, Anna. Um, I don't think any of our uh, listeners uh, would have this problem, but just. Uh, just in case, uh, you use the term spiritual neglect. Um, tell us what you mean by that and what it entails. Yeah, the way I understand spiritual neglect is when we overlook the callings of our own soul. We can go about our days doing what we think is right, doing what everybody else expects of us, but really never bother to check in with ourselves to figure out what it is that our soul most wants of us. And that I'm by that I mean two things. First, understanding what your soul's greatest source of pain is, which in my book I define as a soul correction. Our greatest source of pain that comes up over and over in our life, much akin to what Sigmund Freud called a repetition compulsion, is often precisely what our soul has come into this world to correct. And the other part is checking in with your soul as to what it is that you want to contribute. How is it that you want to help humankind? How is it that you want to contribute to humanity in a way that's uniquely you? And we often don't bother to check in. We kind of can go about our lives looking for all these external sources of gratification, but forgetting to really connect with and align with our own souls. That is spiritual neglect. Mm-hmm. Very and good. How, how much um, time do you devote every day to spiritual practice, assuming that you do? Yes. Um, I meditate for um, every morning and every night. A little bit, I would say five to ten minutes. But mm-hmm. for me, the deeper connection to spirituality really is in the work that I do. I feel most connected to, for me, God, the universe, something greater than myself, and my work with patience. And when I'm with patience, I'm with patience, but I'm also just connected to something else and kind of there to be a channel for them for whatever it is that they need at the time to enable the universe to work through me to you know, help my patients as a psychiatrist, but also as a healer. And that's why sometimes things could like leave. And I wrote about this in my book. Sometimes things can come out of my mouth that I'm just like, why did that just, why did I just say that? It doesn't make logical sense, but then ends up leading to a breakthrough in therapy because it was somehow meaningful to the patient. And had I relied purely on my logical, reasonable mind, I never would have said that. Very interesting. Anna, how did your own spiritual breakthrough and your the sort of new orientation to your uh, uh, profession uh, influence, if it did, um, your uh, professional use of pharmaceuticals? Uh, I, just to add to that, I, I have friends in the mental health world who are a bit troubled with the overemphasis on what they thought think is an overemphasis on the sort of 
medical pharmaceutical model of treating mental health. Um, did your attitude toward that aspect of psychiatry change? So my view on pharmaceuticals, um, so just to give you, you know, a little bit of a lay of the land, in my practice, about 50% of patients are on a psychiatric medication, which is significantly less than the majority of psychiatrists. And what I um, advocate for in my book and what I want to introduce all patients to is this idea of soul work and connecting to your soul, connecting to your authenticity, and connecting to something greater than oneself. But soul work is often difficult to do, and especially if you have a deep depression from which you can't get out, or if you have, you know, chronic schizophrenia mm -hmm. with hallucinations that don't enable the mind to work. And so prior to people connecting to something greater than themselves, they first have to function in this world. And at times like that, sometimes medications are indicated. And it's very much a case-by-case -case basis. You know, there's sometimes medications are needed and sometimes patients have a choice, a reasonable choice as to whether they want medications or not. Great. Uh, Dr. Yusin, uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. And again, I want to mention the name of the book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Uh, it is available and uh, we'll post up all this information on the blog uh, with our uh, podcast. Uh, any final words you'd like to have for our listeners? And also, Phil, any final points you'd like to make? No, I was going to ask the same question. Any final words for the audience? Oh, I, I um, think that you've asked me such wonderful questions, and I so appreciate, Philip and Dennis, you taking the time to learn about me and my book. Thank you. Thank you. Our, Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Take care.